One of the things I'd like to say is she was reading, I'm trying to get my, when she was reading, um, you know, introducing me to the crowd, I realized something that I don't necessarily share a lot, um, is that I'm homegrown. I learned this, this place was my oasis for a lot of years. When I first started meditating, and my first retreat was at IMS, and while I was at, at IMS, Larry Rosenberg and Corrado Pencer were the teachers, and it was a weekend retreat, silent retreat, and I discovered that there was this place called CIMC, and that the teacher that was teaching the retreat actually was the lead teacher here. So since that point, I've been coming to CIMC, and it's been pretty close to 30 years. And in that time, uh, so what, what I'm hoping the result of this book is that just like CIMC was an oasis, that this book can be an oasis for folks, that it can be a companion, it could be a place of rest. So when I started coming here, I was meditating. Of course, you know they have the daily sittings in the morning from 7. I don't know what it's. Let me go back to the way it used to be. In the morning, Monday through Friday, it was a sitting from 7 to 8. And then in the evenings, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, there was a sitting from 6 to 7. And on Wednesday, we had to talk. And I think in those days, we'd have community cleanup, and then we'd sit from, I don't know if it was 5.45, or I don't remember the time, but we'd sit, then we'd have the talk, and then we'd have tea afterwards. And so in my process of recovery and getting into this practice, I used to come here and do the all-day longs like what Larry is, is offering this week, but I would come to the Wednesday talks, and I would come on Sundays. And Sundays they had a sitting uh, led by a practice leader, so from 2 to two, 2 to 5.15, it would be sitting, walking, sitting, walking. And so I did that for a number of years. And I also used to go to IMS once a month and do a, a weekend retreat. And I, about two years in, I don't know when it was, maybe it was, I don't know if it was 1987 or 88, I don't remember. Larry said, because in those days, we were really lucky. There weren't that many yogis. And so I used to have uh, weekly meetings with Larry. And, and so I would meet with him, and then I started doing 10-day retreats, and then he kept up in the ante and said, okay, now it's time for you to do a 10-day retreat. Now it's time for you to do a three-month retreat. And by the way, as you're training for te- to be a teacher, how about observing the beginner's drop-in? So I did that for about six years. I ended up moving in, moving in here in, in 1989, I believe it was. So I lived here for six years, and, and two of those years I didn't work, so I got to study and live in this space. And I was just reflecting on this. I lived in this center for six years. So I was in this space all the time. And did a lot of study, a lot of reading. I got to, when you're a resident here, you do work, but you get to do all the programs for free. So um, I've been living this way of life, and I was reminded 
about five years ago, my buddy Joseph Kapoor and I were, were, were driving to this Buddhist Teachers Council, and I said to Joseph, I said, I don't know why I'm going. I'm not even a Buddhist. And he started laughing at me, and I said, why are you laughing? He said, you're more Buddhist than anybody I know. <laughs> and so I still don't know what that means, but I think what he's saying is my habits, my habits of mind, the fact that I wake up every morning and I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, you know, I understand that, that this way of living, this way of being is really important. And when I lived here, and before I lived here, I was a practice leader. So one of my chores was to answer the calls that the center would get for people in the non-traditional settings that wanted to learn about meditation. We didn't call it mindfulness back then, but it was meditation. And so I would go into these places, it could be schools, could be youth centers, it could be colleges, it could be um, New England Telephone and Telegraph um, companies, just everywhere. Whoever wanted the Dhamma, I would go. And of course, I didn't ask for Dhamma, it was freely given. So, fast forwarding, when I decided to figure out what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I left my job as a financial analyst um, after 16 years. And then that's when I moved in here and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so I started teaching in, in prison. I started teaching everywhere that I could teach. And when Joseph and I went to this teacher's council, I was reflecting, okay, so what makes me different from these other teachers? I mean, anybody, you know, everybody's teaching mindfulness, whether it's in the Dzogchen tradition or the Zen tradition or TM or, or Tibetan, that, you know, what was unique about me? And I realized, I started reflecting that what I do is I teach the Dharma and the places that I teach are not traditional, so we're not going to sit 45 minutes. We're not going to be able to be in a comfy and a cozy atmosphere and do this thing together, sitting and breathing and, and talking about the Dhamma, or talking about how to live. So I had to make it up, you know, like, what's his name? Um, Napoleon Solo in the, the movie um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they say, Indy, what are we going to do next? I maybe it's, it's in, Indiana Jones is the guy I'm thinking about. And he said, they say, Indy, what are we going to do? He says, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go along. And that's what my practice has been. And it's taken me years, decades later to really think about it and synthesize it and think about, well, what is it that I've been doing? And sometimes I teach and people will complain because we didn't sit a lot. Because I was talking and I was, um, it was like group awareness. It was talking in a way uh, discussing, reflecting on, on the practice in a way that got people settled and relaxed and, and mindful. And it's taken me years. And of course, it was rubbing against the grain because I had been in the classical, trained classically and sitting a lot of retreats and, and just staying in silence and not necessarily really talking about how to do 
daily life or the mindfulness. Okay, so you're sitting, and it was very much a duality. It still is to this day. They're sitting and it's practicing, and then there's life. And in actuality, what I had to learn, and because of the consequences and the circumstances in my own practice, I had to learn how to make practice a 24-7 ordeal. And so one of the motivations for the book was to talk about, in the context of athletics, the mindful athlete secrets to pure performance, but it's really about cultivating mindfulness 24-7 that is possible for us to practice from the time we wake up until the time we go to sleep. Now, I'm not minimizing the sitting and being still, but I'm suggesting, and, and the text back me up on this, is that it's the continuity of practice that's the secret of mindfulness, not just being mindful and then unmindfully getting up and then going off and, and being as clueless as we were before we sat down. It has to do with really bringing that quality of mindfulness. And it's very interesting because clear comprehension talks about uh, the, domain, the domain of practice being all day. And we talk about it and we know about it, but do we really do it? We talk about, okay, so during the day, are we really mindful of the body? Are we really mindful where the breath is? Are we really mindful of the quality of mind? Do we know that we're observing things like, a, like the car with the hate glasses on? Or with the love glasses? Or the I don't know what I'm doing glasses? So that any time, so to me, and I, I have to qualify this because I had a lot of spiritual warrior in me. Well, I won't say spiritual warrior. Let's just say the lone warrior in me where everything was intense and I tried really hard and I'd sit and mess up my knee because I'd sit through pain or I'd try to meditate and get a headache because I'm trying too hard. I had a lot of wrong effort and it, take, it took me years to realize Dude, you're making this way too complicated. It's really simple practice. And that, how about practicing with joy? And how did you, when you got into recovery, it was a joyful journey of self-discovery. So why don't you do that more? And why don't you live that more and bring it to your practice? And so that's what I've been doing. And in this book... And the other thing that happened was I was part of this panel that was being interviewed by 60 Minutes. And Anderson Cooper, we spent about four days with him. And there was seven of us in a panel, and they were asking us questions about mindfulness, like um, what stops employees from exploiting employers who are by teaching them mindfulness? And nobody on the panel really had, a, had an answer for that. I did. But I kept quiet because I didn't want us to look disjointed. So what I decided to do was, and I think that got me over the hump to write the book, because I wanted to write the book and talk about the power of mindfulness. So that mindfulness is important, but mindfulness is not enough. And that the way the Buddha taught, taught it, the way I teach it, and the way the foundation from which I come from is, is the Buddhist, the Eightfold Noble Path. So there's uh, right view, right intention, right thought, which is the wisdom piece. 
And then there's right speech, right action, right livelihood, which is the morality piece or integrity piece. And then there's right effort, right, right mindfulness, right concentration, which in most of the texts they call that the concentration piece. And so a lot of people think that mindfulness, and they confuse mindfulness with right effort and concentration. It's the mental training, but unless it is supported by right view and right intention or, or doing no harm, then it's not the same. And so those three, even though there are eight, there are three sections, the wisdom piece, the morality piece, and the, I call it mental training piece rather than concentration, because it's more than concentration. <coughs> And that the way I teach mindfulness is within the context of wisdom and morality. So it's easier to sit on a cushion and be still and know when, you're, when we're not creating more suffering for ourselves and others. And so anytime my mind has greed in it or hatred or delusion, Whatever I think, say, or do is going to be unskillful. And so a big part of mindfulness is really about being skillful, knowing what mind state. So I learned that a joyful way of doing this practice is we talk about right, we talk about right effort. So right effort is, is this idea of of abandoning an unwholesome mind state when it arises. So when anger arises, is is learning how to abandon that. Second part of it is to prevent the arising of the anger in the first place. And then the third part of it traditionally is to, to um, have a positive mind state like mindfulness arise so how to bring into existence mindfulness or loving kindness or compassion, sympathetic joy, or just love. And then the fourth part of that is how to, once it arises, how to maintain it and perfect it. And what I realized was an easy way of doing this, and this is in line with me, with this strenuous and the focus attention, is to, how about starting off with um, making wholesome mind states arise. How, because if you're mindful, or if you're loving, or if you have this positive mind state, that's a lot easier meditating with that than it is with anger. Because I've done that. I've sat through anger, frustration, greed mostly, because I wanted to be enlightened yesterday. <laughs> but it's still... It's still, un, it's still unwholesome. It's unskillful. And so just learning how to, okay, so why don't we start off by focusing on what's right or focusing on uh, making the mind um, wholesome by knowing, okay, how do I have a mind that has non-greed or generosity? How do I have a mind that has uh, loving kindness instead of ill will? How do I have a mind that is intent on seeking wisdom? and understanding uh, who we are and how we are relating, whether we are creating more stress or more ease. And so that was the attempt of this book. And so I did it with the five spiritual powers, which is the first one is, is trust or faith. 
And of course, I talked about the idea of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And the idea is mindfulness when we're cultivating. This is being in the you know, right effort in terms of, of bringing into existence positive mind states and also maintaining, perfecting them, is using mindfulness to balance uh, trust or confidence with wisdom. Because a lot of times what, what, I, what, what you'll discover is when you have too much wisdom and not enough faith, you're a cynic. Or things that you can be cynical, you can be very distraught about the course of things. Oh my goodness, how am I going to get through this? And so with the mindfulness, it can inform us and say, okay, there's not enough confidence or, or trust, so you got to work on that. we got to cultivate that. Or well, if we have too much trust, then we become kind of, kind of Pollyanna-ish and blind faith. And that, that's not skillful either. So it's understanding how to, how to be more confident, how to use wisdom or discernment to check and see, is this true? So if I say to you, okay, be aware of the fact that you're sitting down, that being mindful of being in a seated posture, well, you can test that out. How can you test that out? Because when you're in a seated posture, there's going to be certain body parts making contact with surfaces. And so that's real powerful when we can test it. And the Buddha said, don't believe what I say. See for yourself. And, so this, and as we start to investigate and explore, then the, the confidence becomes conviction. And that the more confident we get, then the more effort we're going to make. And the more effort we make, the more mindful we're going to be. And the more mindful we're going to be, the more concentrated we're going to be. Or steadiness of mind. And the more steadiness of mind is going to lead to more wisdom. So it's this idea of those qualities. We see, okay, when you're mindful, you just, there's this relaxed receptivity. And it's just this ability to see what's going on without interrupting it, allowing it to speak to us. But at the same time, in order to do that, it has to be supported by steadiness of mind, making the right effort, keeping the mind positive, um, and also clearly knowing what are we doing or what's going on here. So that mindfulness and wisdom are there, but they're being supported by right effort and, and steadiness of mind and this idea of this is going to work, this is of value. I'm going to be able to do what I intend to do. And so just thinking about it that way, and I don't want to talk a lot more, but that was my intention in this book, is to talk about mindfulness in a way where I call it the power of mindfulness, because it's powerful, rather than just having mindfulness, but really maybe not being sensitive to wisdom or sensitive to whether we are harming or, or generating... Um, uh, goodness or generating ease and peace. This makes sense what I'm saying? So I don't want to talk a lot more, but that's basically what my intention was, and I, and I discovered that that's how I had been teaching. But how I learned how to do that was when I go into these places is to just let the mindfulness and the wisdom uh, help me to just read what was, you know, have the situation read we have the situation, just read it or, how do I want to say, let it speak to me and then decide what I was going to do based on that. And that's how I teach. And so when you're playing sports and you're in a zone, that's what's happening.
that you're just allowing your in this relaxed receptivity, but there's an intention and there's a enthusiasm. But then it's like letting the situation speak to us and then moving with it because in the in the moment of observing what is, there's this instantaneous movement because we train the mind and the heart, we train the body to be ready when that comes, then it knows what to do. So there's a there's a part in the book that maybe I'll read that will kind of speak to this a little bit. And I hope I can find it um, pretty quickly. And, it, and it's from the TV series Kung Fu. And, okay, I found it. This is interesting. So, in one Kung Fu scene that dramatized what it means to be a spiritual warrior and almost transcendentally accomplished mindful athlete, Kane is at a campsite at night with a young cowboy. He's been talking about the connections between archery and meditation, which, of course, the cowboy doesn't quite understand. The scene unfolds like this. Cowboy, meditation? What do you think about? I think of nothing but to be one with the target. Kane draws the bow, his bow, turns his head away from the target, and shoots his arrow. It hits the bullseye. Cowboy, you think I'm going to believe that? Kane, watch my eyes. Kane draws the bow again and turns his head away from the target again. This time he shuts his eyes and shoots. He hits the bullseye. Cowboy, how'd you do that? I do not do it. It is not done. What do you mean it is not, it's not done? It is only experienced. It happens. It happens. The pole, the arrow, this is Cain, the pole, the arrow, the, the pole, the arrow, the bow are all one. Not many things. Not different things. One. Well, I see it, but I sure don't understand it. Cain, good. Why is it good? It remains a puzzle. When you cease to strive to understand, then you will know without understanding. So that is the secret, is to, to not try to, you know, to be there. It's like in Art Archery, he talks about it shoots. Well, what is it? And there's nothing wrong with living in a mystery. There's nothing wrong with realizing when we're in the zone, you listen to what people are saying. They're saying that time is altered and there's no sense of self. And, it, and things are just happening. It shoots. It moves. It, it dances. And we have that in our lives. And I experience that even when I speak and when I do presentations, when I work, is because what I try to do is just allow it to happen. And, and that's a it can be challenging to do that because sometimes the ego wants to say, no, we got to do this or we got to do that. But I was broken of that habit early on when I worked in prison. I was working in this one prison called um, Norfolk, uh, Norfolk um, County House of Correction, I think, or Norfolk Institute. I don't know what it's called, but it's Norfolk. And I went in there and I had 32 students and I had prepared all of these Dharma talks, you know, first working in there, I said, I'm going to give them the gospel according to the Buddha. <laughs> and I go in there, and out of the 32 students, 28 of them were Spanish-speaking only. <laughs> and I had to use an interpreter, and all of a sudden, all of that preparation went out the window, and I had to just be present and, and just keep it really simple. 
And it taught me something. It taught me that, yeah, the best laid plans is I can plan for things, but then I have to be here because ultimately, what is it? What is mindfulness about? It's about presence of mind, being in the moment, because we only live one moment at a time, and having some idea of what the essentials are so that we know there's a clearly knowing of what it is we're trying to do, and then allowing it to happen. So people ask me all the time, well, isn't it a contradiction that you're competing and you're being mindful, and you know, so you're competing against the other person. And I said, no. I said that's one way of looking at it. But how about competing against your previous best self? Because when you're focusing on the enemy and focusing out there, you're not focusing on what you're doing. So on some level, it's about being focused on what you're doing and not on how you're doing or who you're doing it with or against. And so I'll end there. And I know. Probably left it in a lot of mystery, but I think that's good because that means that more investigation is required, which is another way of saying more sitting is required or more contemplation or more just seeing what is so. Just being mindful and letting this situation speak to us in a way that we're able to uh, learn from it. And it's like the analogy I like to use is this process of power of mindfulness is like putting a crossword puzzle together. You look, you get one piece, you put it in, and then you keep going over the same thing with, with, as if it's speaking to you for the first time. And then after times of going over, you stitch a little bit more information together, then you say, okay, there's another piece, and then you keep putting pieces together, and then at some point you have the whole picture, and then you move to the next crossword puzzle. So that's the analogy I like to use. And there's one thing I want to read that kind of sums that up. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. That's T.S. Eliot. So I'd like to end um, there, and I don't believe I didn't tape that. So anyway. Open it up for questions. Any questions? Okay, can we? Um, First off, thank you for coming. Um, my question is just to ask if you could talk about the time in your life when you went from being a student of all these, all this knowledge to the time that you started teaching. Like, first off, when did that happen in your life, and what was uh, the cause of that transition? Okay, let me make sure I understand what you just said. Repeat the question. So when in your life did you begin teaching as opposed to just being a student, and what was the cause of you becoming a teacher? Um, it's interesting. I'm not really sure exactly when, but I was talking to a friend of mine who I knew in recovery, and she told me that I taught her how to meditate in 1986, and I had forgotten about it. But I think I remember talking to Larry about it, and he liked the idea of me teaching because I didn't want to teach. And, um, and I still consider myself a student. I still consider myself learning, but here's what I learned. 
I, I know from my own experience. If you want to learn something, teach it. So the teacher and the student are the same. So when I'm speaking and I'm teaching, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to myself. So I, I'm fond of saying, okay, I don't know how many people are here, but um, I'm learning from all of you. And you're learning from me and hopefully we're learning from each other. But so I think early on because I am a recovering perfectionist, that I like, I need to know things through and through, and I'm really, I have curiosity. So I think I've always been a teacher on some level, and also a student because there's a there's a humility and a willingness to learn. And I know even as much as I know that there's uh, trillions of galaxies out there, and so there's point there's ninety nine ninety nine point. Is it nine 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 nine? We just don't know. There's a lot more we don't know than what we know. But then there's a lot more we don't even know we don't know. So for me to stop learning till the day I die, it would be wouldn't be skillful. So I'm I'm still a student. That's how I see myself. Right. Thank you. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. I um. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. I, I recently started teaching college a few years ago, actually now, <laughs> um, and I, I was reading something that was like a quote of yours about um, being self-conscious mm -hmm. during performance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.